Hello there and welcome to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Werner, joined alongside by Sun Devil Source staff reporters, Kalen Jones. Kalen, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Rob. How are you doing? Everything's good. Everything's good. Max Madden's joining us as well. Max, how are you this this fine afternoon? Well, the uh, typical Arizona sunny weather is back, so I'm doing better. There you go. Fabian Ardaya, how are you? I just got to see Lionel Messi continue to be great, so pretty good. So Kalen isn't loving that for Chelsea, so we're trying to not talk about that. Chris Cartman, our very on-site publisher, how are you today? I'm a little bit frustrated today, Rob. I'm <laughs> listening to people talk about the greatest soccer player of all time with no absolute recognition or understanding of how good players were. And oh, it's a, it's a different ago. game. It's a different it's game than it used to be. Like, oh, man. Athleticism, everything yeah, is completely different. Evolved. So how can you say somebody's the best? It's true. In this moment, like, there's no one that's better than him right now. And no one's been as productive as him ever. Yes, basically. Is that, like, the advanced analytics of 1975 or what? I mean, a lot of people in our generation think LeBron James is definitely better than Michael Jordan and have and didn't get to see Michael Jordan sure. play live. That's a bias associated with your experience. <laughs> Whatever. Well, we're actually going to do a podcast on Arizona State Athletics, and it's going to be all about ASU men's basketball. ASU, though, did release its spring football practice schedule. Practices are starting March 13th. The spring game is going to be a month from then on April 13th. Kind of a scary sign playing on the 13th two times, Chris. I mean, only if you buy into all those kind of things. You don't step on cracks. Well, don't you think Herm don't does? break your mother's back and all that stuff. I wouldn't be don't surprised Don't break a mirror, Rob. Do don't break a mirror. I don't think Herm cares whatsoever about it. I don't think he even even knows that Friday of, <laughs> the 13th of April is, is Friday. <laughs> okay, well, Chris, you're going to be spending this week and next week interviewing the ASU assistant coaches. We'll have some of those interviews as well as our in-depth reporting on the football team in each of the next two weeks on our premium podcast, so look out for that. But this week is going to be all about men's basketball. We're breaking down first uh, ASU's loss to U of A this past Thursday in the Territorial Cup. ASU lost 77-70. to U of A completes the season sweep. Um, and then a quick summary of the game. U of A was up as many as 18 points in the first half. They started the game on an 11-2 run. ASU uh, caught up by the end of the second half and was only trailing by one going into half, 39-38. And then ASU, in total, between the first half and the second half, went on an overall 31-6 run, led by as many as seven in the second half. Um, and with 17 minutes to play, they were leading by seven. The game was tied at 63 with three minutes and 48 seconds to go. And from then on out, Arizona dominated the last four minutes of the game. Aiton, Trier, both of them uh, really proved too much for ASU. Um, DeAndre Aiton didn't touch the ball for 20 minutes offensively and still ended up with 25 points. Wait, literally did not touch it? <laughs> or... He didn't touch the ball for didn't, 20 minutes offensively. Didn't get a shot, probably. He, he didn't get a shot on the offensive side for, for 20 minutes. That's, those are two different things, right? Right. Okay. He, didn't, he, didn't, he, didn't get a, uh, he didn't get a shot up for 20 minutes and Making still finished sure with 25 points and 16 rebounds, eight offensive rebounds. And then Trier had a, a pretty quiet 19 points. Um, I thought he was one of the differences in the game. Bobby Hurley said in the postgame press conference that his three probably sealed the game when it was 65-63. Trier made a three with 217 left that put uh, the Wildcats up by five. What did you guys think was the biggest difference, though, in that game? Um, Arizona had a, had DeAndre Aiton and Arizona State didn't. That's a pretty big difference. Bingo. But also... Arizona recap is over. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, I think we talked about in the podcast last week some of the things that Arizona State needs to do successfully in order to win that game. Uh, one of the first things I remember I harped on was turnovers, and that was something Arizona State struggled with. 
they were able to make up for it by forcing 20 turnovers, but 14 turnovers, that's too much to have, especially when you're having a limited number of possessions with Arizona slowing the game down. Uh, Shannon Evans struggled for the second straight game against Arizona. For some reason, they really that length really gives him a lot of problems in his game. And I just think that Arizona managed to play the game on its own terms, and when it does that, it's a pretty darn hard college basketball team to beat. I think the fact that this is a this was ended up being a seven point game is both an indictment on sort of the offensive game plan from Arizona and also a testament to just how wild Cody Justice's performance was. We saw him take two or three threes from beyond thirty feet possibly and make those in not good shot selection, but that, I mean that's kind of this team, as Kevin Stewart noted uh, last week on our podcast. But you know, Rob, you mentioned that he didn't get a shot up in 20 minutes. Is just uh, doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, even when he didn't get his shots up and ASU was able to rally a little bit in the middle, when, when the Sun Devils double-teamed Aiden, I mean, he had four assists, but his, his assists were so, like, incredible when you're watching the game. It's, yeah, uh, and... You know, they would just double him. They'd, they'd slide the, the weak side guard over underneath, and then Aiden would find someone cutting down the middle. And then as soon as they go away from the double team on Aiden, because it's clearly not working, uh, you know, someone like Parker Jackson Cartwright will find him immediately, uh, you know, to end the game that dunked down the baseline. So, as we noted, Aiden was a difference. And I think that, uh, you know, without a super quiet uh, Trey Holder uh, scoring 20 points and Justice hitting some ridiculous threes, four of nine from three point field goals. Uh, then this game was was a lot worse. Than it yeah, could have been. and building off that match, like and you know we're, we can be critical of Shannon Evans in this matchup. He went two of twelve from the field, um, missed the key put. I think the key slam dunk that might have been the turning point in the game where he missed that, and it was pretty much uh, a replay of the last matchup where he missed a tip and where Trey Holden ne- nearly had the layup to tie the game back when they played in Tucson. So. Um, his performances against Arizona this season have really cost them, especially in such a close game. He only came away with, uh, what was it, five points. It's the lowest output since they played Arizona back in Tucson. So, and, you know, not, not just the hinge on him here, but the calling card of this team as a whole, and Bobby Hurley actually mentioned it, it's been the play of the three senior guards. And to this point, you really need all three of them to show up. I think this was a matchup that really, you know, kind of accentuated that. Going into the postseason, it's going to take an effort from all three of them. What And it doesn't have to be all at the same time, but at different points in the game. Like you saw early on, I think Cody Justice dug ASU out of the hole, and then you saw Trey Holder start to get going. You need Shannon Evans to, you know, kind of finish that run in order for ASU to come away with the victory there. Um, I thought that that really hurt them. But then also Kamani Lawrence, uh, We obviously he's still you know assimilating himself back into the lineup. The fact that he went 0 for 2, um, didn't have too much of an impact, only played 7 minutes. But we'll, I think we're still trying to figure out what this team – I think we there's an, a set identity that we understand of this team. It's just that you're looking for the missing – like to fill in the gaps and the holes. I think they're still trying to figure out how to do that ahead of postseason. My my big takeaways from this game, I just you knew going in that ASU was going to have to hit a higher percentage of its three-pointers, almost invariably to win. Mm-hmm. Um, Arizona has a much more reliable style of basketball. Arizona is first in the Pac-12 in field goal percentage. The only team above 50% from the field, the next closest is Oregon State at 46, 47%, essentially. That's a big difference. And yet... Arizona doesn't need to rely on uh, the three-point shot, despite the fact that it is also the best three-point shooting team in the league by percentage, 39% from three. Uh, Six teams have made more threes in the league than Arizona. 
because Arizona can beat you very easily right. with DeAndre Ayton, with the Dusan Ristich inside. Um, they give up something on defense. Trammellers teams have typically been better on defense than on offense, I think, structurally, or at least in terms of their efficiency. This team is, is a little bit different. ASU doesn't have that ability to rely on post-scoring, which, of course, as you guys said, Arizona went, went away from mistakenly right. for a long stretch, which enabled ASU to, to have that huge run. What was it, 36 to... 31 to 6. 31 to 6, pardon me. I mean, you said to us off air, how many times do you have a 31 to 6 run and then lose the game? Um, 1% of the time yeah. you have a 30, 31 to 6 run and then you lose the game. Um so yeah, I mean, I, and then um, also it was point was made that Shannon Evans struggled. Um, I don't think they've got enough from their two star guards in some of these bigger games this season. They shot a combined nine for thirty nine. Right, um, and and, it, and then what Fabian said, which I agreed with, is that you can get away with that if you're not turning the ball over at all. Uh, ASU actually turned the ball over a little bit more against Arizona, which it has. And, uh, and and they, they forced, you know, ASU had 14 turnovers. Arizona had 20 turnovers. That, as much as anything, kept ASU in the game. But uh, so it's just not a bankable, you know, offensive ability in uh, late game, end game situations to be able to come through for the Sun Devils. And it seemed like the ASU bench was kind of providing a spark that we haven't seen a little bit lately. I mean, Remy had 10 points off the bench. Mickey Mitchell had six points, three assists, and four rebounds, and really looked solid in his time. And, I mean, ASU looked really good for for a large portion of that game in the middle. Well, foul trouble became a major thing also. Right. right. And, and Mitchell uh, fouled out, yeah. The ASU had three players with four fouls with seven-plus minutes left, right? And then uh, what we saw was uh, Aiton became a second-chance machine uh, once ASU was in serious foul trouble and didn't want to ha- get its guys fouled out, Aiden starts just cleaning up the glass. He had eight offensive rebounds in the second half alone, one in the first half. So that became huge. I think uh, uh, the brilliance of Aiden is he wasn't in foul trouble whatsoever. He's so uh, huge and yet graceful and has great body control that he doesn't foul, whereas you see ASU's players sometimes swatting and committing these very obvious fouls that you just can't have, you got to be able to manage that uh, over a longer span of the game. And, and this wasn't the first time we've seen this, right. Rob. There's been a, a trend in Pac-12 mm-hmm. of ASU having key players in, up front getting in foul trouble. Right. And the predictions we had ahead of that game, Fabian and our very own Kevin Stewart predicted ASU were going to win. But other than that, Max, Kalen, myself, and Chris all thought Arizona was going to win that game. And even though ASU lost, the atmosphere felt absolutely electric for that game. I think maybe louder than almost any game I've ever been to uh, for a college basketball game. The celebrities, just the volume, there were 14,233 fans at Wells Fargo Arena uh, for that game. The capacity at Wells Fargo Arena is actually 14,000. That's the number they try to cap it at. Um, And this was the largest crowd since 2005. Um, So just some more statistics, though, about the attendance. ASU is now averaging the third highest attendance in the Pac-12 behind only U of A and Utah. And you got to keep in mind that ASU didn't increase their seating in in Wells Fargo Arena. They didn't take the uh, the the murals off the off the top until after ASU's non-conference schedule was completed on January 9th. Um, 
And I just I just want to ask you, Chris, about what you think about how amazing it is that this program is really showing these numbers of fans each game. Well, even Sean Miller commented on the environment after the game. And in the big picture, this may be one of the most important things about this season. Because when you have really high-profile recruits that are now coming to games at ASU, you know, we've seen several high-profile commits at, at multiple games this year between Cherry, Kyrie Walker, uh, Eddie House's son, Jalen House. Lugin Dorrance was at uh, Dort was there for Dort Arizona. Was at the Arizona game. These guys are seeing a truly great basketball environment. UCLA, the best attendance in over a decade. Arizona was the highest attended game in ASU since 2005. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so why would you not expect those people to be excited by what they're seeing coupled with the fact that everyone sort of agrees that Bobby Hurley is very much of a player's coach, lets guys play almost maybe too much, maybe not as much regimentation as you might want or structure in some situations, but for what players are looking for, it really fits the bill. Um, and, and then you have, of course, uh, players that are up for national awards, like Trey Holder has gone deep into the Naismith and John Wooden and all that stuff. It seems like uh, the recipe for what kids would be looking for are all sort of there and will remain in place next season. It's like this is going to just fall off. So I think that the, the, the way that the community has bought into what's happening here, uh, it shouldn't be understated. And from being in Tucson for that game, ASU, U of A, and Tempe, the difference was, was, was negligible. It was basically a comparable environment for both of those games. And guys, what do you guys think about that? How important is the fact that ASU is getting these crowds and these environments for games? I think this entire season is almost, like we said, when they were 12-0, and number three in the country, it's a year early for this jump to happen. So this is happening prematurely. But what it's doing is it's setting things up for years to come. And I think uh, one of the jobs, as when you come to a new job, is helping to change the culture. And it applies more to just player, more than more to than just the players. It applies to who comes to your games and how many people come to your games. And what they're doing this season is they've changed a lot of the culture that is Arizona State basketball. In a lot of ways, this is a place where their basketball program is interesting. And I think it, you have the pieces to make it sustainable. I think part of what makes it sustainable is games like this game against Arizona where you're able to bring in 14,000 fans in front of these recruits and then it helps you bring those recruits in, helps you build for the year forward, and that's how you build a program, not just a one-year uh, shot in the dark season that this season could be if it, if they hadn't put those recruiting pieces ahead and that they weren't building the culture off of it. Yeah, and I think you, you can see, like, the national imprint that ASU is starting to leave. Like, obviously, they're not there yet, but um, for a national writer to go, I think the, the guy from Sporting News wrote earlier this week, like, that he compared it to Cameron Indoor Stadium. Like, for that to even be in the realm of possibility for Wells Fargo Arena for it this to be happening at Arizona State. Like again, granted, like they're they're not there yet. They crept as high as number three in, in the rankings though. They're starting to build some success and I mean the fans are showing up, so it, that the results kind of speak for themselves. Yeah, and Kaylin on that, I mean you said that they're obviously not there yet and we mentioned that we this may be a season early. And they're not at the level, of course, of Arizona, you know, infrastructure recruiting wise, any of that. But being able to put this many fans in a game and have this sort of environment is a way to sort of close the gap talent-wise with a lot of these better teams that will come to Wells Fargo. 
And then next for ASU, they're going to head to Oregon this Thursday. They're playing Oregon at 9.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. They lost Oregon in a very close game, 76-72 last time. They'll then play Oregon State on Saturday. That game will be at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So, guys, ASU lost to Oregon, obviously, 76-72. That was one of the most electric crowds other than this past U of A game um, that, that has been in recent history. I mean, James Harden was there. Devin Booker was there. Governor Ducey was there in attendance. ASU was up as many as 13 points in the first half. Um, but some of the notes from that game is Oregon beat ASU 38-16 points in the paint. The Ducks took 65 shots. The Sun Devils only took 46 shots. Uh, Peyton Pritchard, the, the sophomore guard, had 18 points and 6 assists. Elijah Brown had 18 points. Michael McIntosh had 12 points and 13 rebounds. And then that was right in the middle of, of Trey Holder's slump, if you guys remember. He had he had 14 points, but on 4 of 13 shooting. Cody Justice had 21, was kind of the best player in that game for ASU. And Romello White actually had maybe one of his best games actually in Pac-12 play. He had 8 points and 6 rebounds. What do you guys think ASU, though, has to do this time around to flip the script and, and beat an Oregon team that it looked like they were going to beat the first time and, until the second half? Oh, well, Oregon gave Arizona State a lot of issues with their matchup zone uh, last time they were here, and that, that's part of why Oregon was able to climb back into the game as they slowed the pace down, limited the, no, the number of possessions, and wanted and forced Arizona State to be as efficient as possible. And they weren't efficient down the stretch. They took a lot of bad shots, as they tend to do, and they just weren't following. I think what ASU needs to do is show a little bit of the progression that they have made against zones. Obviously, uh, matchup zones different than what they've faced for a lot of different times of the season, but they've shown steps of progression. I think you saw that UCLA game that ASU managed to take apart the zone. If they can get a couple stretches like that together and force Oregon to play man, that's when Arizona State can start to play the game on its own terms, and that's when Arizona State plays its best basketball. So I think that's the key is how offensively they're able to attack the matchup zone and how efficient they're able to be early on and maybe force Oregon to switch out of it. Yeah, and to that point, Fabian, like you, you mentioned that ASU struggled with the zone. That was one of Trey Holder's worst games. Went 4 for 13 in that matchup. Look at Shannon Evans, 4-9 uh, in that contest. And then Cody Cody Justice went 6-12, pretty solid game. But again, like that post presence, I think that we've seen kind of develop and take time to slowly mature into itself. When you look at the way Daquan Lake has played, uh, Ramel White, I think the way that those guys have played in recent contests, not obviously maybe not against the Arizona game, but um, you know the way that they've developed to this point since that matchup, I think is an encouraging sign for ASU. Uh, again, so long as they get you know, productive minutes out of their senior guards, and they should be able to hang around. It, also, like, defending Elijah Brown will be, you know, of significant importance, too. And, and to that point, I think the – actually, it's more of, more of what Fabian said, is that the way that, that they respond to Oregon slowing the pace down. ASU, if they're going to be successful in these last four games that are super important for conference tournament seating and also uh, seating in the uh, tournament – is they're going to be they're going to have to slow the game down. They're going to have to be comfortable playing in a slower tempo game because they can't. We've seen what happens when when ASU turns the pace up. They'll commit a lot of turnovers um, just invariably. And so ASU is going to have to slow down. They'll have to swing those guards. And like we saw Cody Justice and even Remy Martin trying to break the middle of the zone. If they can do that, they can put force Oregon into maybe being a little bit more lenient in man covered or in, in man defense. And and that's when ASU really thrives. Uh, I think. Reflecting on that game in Tempe, which was ASU's first loss at home of the season, mm-hmm. the the one-two-two extended pressure that Oregon puts forth, that then backs up into the matchup zone, it really hurt ASU's offensive rhythm flow. That was 
the first time at home in the season where I thought they just were very disjointed. And then what Oregon uh, has as an advantage is it has a lot of length uh, and athleticism in its front court. They block shots. They contest shots. They make you feel it when you, when, when you, when you go into the, the, um, the painted area. Um, Kenny Wooten, even though he didn't have an offensive productive game, and was in foul trouble. He was in foul trouble. Is somebody that night. can be a big factor, especially mm-hmm. when they're playing at home. Uh, uh, McIntosh had 13 rebounds, I think, in that game. Yeah, he did. And was a big performer. Um, so I don't even think Oregon necessarily played well, actually, at, at ASU. And I think you have a good point because that was right in the middle of where ASU was starting to fall and starting to struggle in Pac-12 play. Well, the, because it was right at the outset of when teams were hitting them with zones. Right. And it was a exactly. zone that they hadn't seen prior. That The previous week, they played at Colorado and Utah. That was an issue. And then, you know, they. So this will be a measuring stick at whether they've been able to really figure out how to attack this thing more successfully uh, and then be able to execute at a higher level. I, I think they need um, better play overall, of course, from their front court players to facilitate that. And Kamani Lawrence, let's not forget, he was just barely starting to get going then, only played five minutes in that game. He's a type of, of uh, athlete with some size that maybe could help. And at, following that loss, ASU had to, to Oregon at home. They, they played Oregon State, Wayne Tinkle squad, and uh, Oregon State is just 13-13, and 5-9 uh, and nine in the Pac-12 overall. But they played ASU really tough. They were up as many as 13 points uh, in the second half on ASU with, with, with just 11 minutes to go. Stephen Thompson Jr. had 21. Trace Tingle had 18 and 10 rebounds. Um, Ethan Thompson had 11 points. And Drew Ubanks, the other starter. Those four starters each played over 34 minutes. I'm kind of interested to see how ASU this time can defend against the four starters, really, that played the majority of the game. Uh, for Oregon, that was when Trey Holder had probably his worst game of the season. He had four points on one of nine shooting. Uh, Shannon Evans had one of his best games with 22 points on an efficient 7-11 shooting, and then 27 bench points for ASU. Uh, Fabian Yurth had a great piece about Daquan Lake, and he had 11 points and six rebounds in that game. I mean, Martin had 12 points. Um, how do you guys think ASU can contain the OSU starters and, w- and win this game? I think one of the big things about that Oregon State game that benefited Arizona State is for some reason uh, – they went man down the stretch, which played directly into Arizona State's hand. Uh, Shannon Evans had a very poor first half, I believe, in that game, but he got off to a hot shooting start in the second half, and then Oregon State flipped to man, and then the rest of the offense uh, sort of got going, and they sort of hit one of those bursts. They haven't had that often in Pac-12 play, but they hit one at home, and I think that's really what carried them up. But Oregon State was giving them problems with size early on. The zone was slowing the pace down. It's a lot of the same issues that played Arizona State throughout the season is teams that have are able to use their size and are able to slow the game down with the zone. That really is what presents a lot of issues for Arizona State. Um, but although Oregon State's not as athletic as an Arizona or an Oregon with their zone, if Arizona State's able to break through the zone, able to make the most of efficient opportunities and the limited opportunities they have, then hopefully they they would be they hope they would be able to get Oregon State uh, switch back to a man, and that's when Arizona State's offense really gets going. And we, we talked about sort of what you know Oregon State got away from and what they changed game plan wise, but something they won't change, they can't change is 
how well that Trace Tinkle and, and Drew Eubanks played against the Sun Devils, and that's not something that is easily fixable. I think that Oregon State's forwards and you know Tinkle and Eubanks are a lot more versatile than ASU's forwards. I think that, especially size-wise, Drew Eubanks brings a lot more to the game and is a little bit more developed of a scorer and a rebounder than someone like Daquan Lake, who is really the only guy that ASU can put on him. And then Trace Tinkle, obviously, just a lot more athletic and a better scorer than whoever will be defending him, whether that's Cody Justice or Romello White. It's just really hard to stop those two guys. And that's not going to change. So I think that's why this game will be very close again. And as Chris mentioned, you know, it's going to be measuring stick this series kind of to see not only if Oregon can continue to play a solid zone and, and, and if they've improved that at all and if ASU has proved, improved against that, but can ASU improve, uh, you know, against you know tremendous matchup issues? Yeah, but again, I, I think it just comes down to the senior, sen- the play of the senior guards. Like, and again, I think I've repeated this literally every single episode. But you know, as long as one, all three of them play well, and this, and this is in our notes. I think Rob pointed out that Trey Holders was in the prime of his slump last time that they played. He went one of nine from the field and had six points. I mean, it, so long as you get production out of the three of them, and if ASU, regardless, I think whether Oregon State plays in their zone or not, I think that ASU is talented enough to, that they should be able to go up to Corvallis and beat this Oregon State team. Oregon State, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't really have a lot of threes shot against it. Uh, it's last in the league, uh, or fewest threes by opponent in the league. ASU only took 16 threes out of 57 field goals uh, in that game. So uh, it, to me, in this game, this is uh, about ASU being able to exploit that by working the ball uh, in a deliberate fashion to where it wants it on the court, on the interior, and then also how much it can get to the free throw line and be able to convert from there. I think those are things I'm looking forward forward to seeing. Okay, so I want everybody's predictions for this weekend. I'll go first. I think ASU gets a split. I think ASU loses at Oregon and beats Oregon State. I feel the same way. I think Oregon's just too athletic with their zone. That's going to present a lot of issues for Arizona State, and I don't think they'll be able to stay out of foul trouble with their bigs or be able to penetrate the zone enough to force them to play man. Yeah, I got the same thing. I have a split. I think they lose at Oregon, win Oregon State. I have the same thing. Split, unfortunately, I went last. Uh, but, yeah, definitely have the same thing. I mean, you're not last. I'm last, and I say ASU sweeps this weekend. I feel more confident about this one than I've been about any any trip so far just because I think ASU is playing a much better style of basketball. I think the, in the U of A game, I think they played a really good game. I mean, they took a good team in Arizona down to the wire, so I'm, I think this is the most confident I've been in a prediction I've had um, for ASU um, so far. But guys, let's let's shift a little bit into the Pac-12 tournament. The tournament is going to be from March 7th to the 10th. The championship winner obviously gets the automatic bid into the NCAA tournament. Four highest seeds get first-round buys. What's needed to get a first-round buy, and and what seed is ASU projected to be right now? Well, you look at this, the uh, this, the the way the the conference uh, re- records shake out. My guess is ASU needs to win all four games uh, to to ensure itself. Of being in the top four, three wins and they have a chance. Two wins, they have no chance. Right. Pretty much. That's fair. That's so, pretty fair. So, okay, ASU should obviously beat Cal at home. That's one of its easiest games of the season. Maybe its easiest game of the season. Uh, Stanford at home, ASU is going to be favored, but that's a game that could go either ways. I would say ASU is about a 65-35 maybe edge in that game. I think ASU probably should beat Oregon State, although that game was close in Tempe. 
Um, my guess is ASU ends up not getting a bye and, and ends up somewhere around like fifth or sixth place in the Pac-12. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with Chris that they pretty much have to sweep in order to get a bye, and they kind of really need a bye because this year more than almost any year in the Pac-12, the one through about like nine in about in this conference can all sort of take each other uh, on in a one-game elimination standpoint, and I think Arizona State the worst-case scenario in this for Arizona State would involve playing on the first day in Vegas and losing. So I think Arizona State needs to try to avoid, obviously, if possible, to get the bye. And if they don't, they're going to have a tough matchup, regardless of who it is between Colorado, Oregon, Oregon State, one of those teams. And by the way, before you guys uh, add your thoughts on that, uh, the Pac-12 tournament, since it came back, it's been 16 years, and ASU's played on Friday only once. So if you play Wednesday... The odds of you getting to Friday are significantly less slim, and especially when you consider the way that they play. I know, I know that they work on conditioning a lot, but I think last year was it the Oregon matchup that they ended up losing? They just looked tired by the end of it. They looked yeah. too gassed. They had been, I think they played what back to back games coming into that. So the series yeah, of touring Graham, game, yeah, and went to overtime, and you know it had been grueling. So and plus they had very almost no depth. That too. This time they have that, but at the same time, you know, the style of play is still pretty similar where they need, I think you need to play at an up and down pace. I know earlier, like Max and Five were saying, like they probably play better when the game is slowed down, but I I still think they play better even with the turnovers when they're playing with pace. I I think that's their calling card. So going into the matchup, I I think they're going to have to rely on that or regardless of who they play. It's just a matter of them, like you said, Chris, getting that first day to kind of come in and rest up. I think that's going to be big. I have one more thought just I wanted to add here. Um, it seems counterintuitive, but uh, and maybe doesn't exactly uh, give you a lot of confidence as a fan listening to this about uh, the coaching, but ASU's been much better when it's had shorter amounts of time to prepare for <laughs> opponents and when opponents have had a shorter amount of time to prepare for it. Um, one of the stats that that ASU's really excellent media relations department used to put out when the previous coach, Herb Sendak, was uh, in Tempe was how good of a record that he had when they had four days or more to prepare for an opponent. Well, you look at this season, um, and what is ASU, like one in six in the first game of the Pac-12, of a week in the Pac-12, lost Arizona, lost every other week until it swept, Right. In the, uh, against the LA schools, yeah, and then and then ASU won against all two good teams in the LA schools, and then and then ASU won all the other games when it had less time to prepare. Um, I don't think that's exactly the most confidence-inspiring stat <laughs> overall to your coaching staff, but 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 where it, it is you know can be seen in a glass half full manner is that when you get to a, a tournament environment, that actually may be beneficial for you when teams have less time to prepare for you, and you know. It's more of a just a fast and loose environment. Maybe that's good for you. That's also maybe why ASU was better in the non-conference when teams are spending less time in a regimented way preparing for opponents. Mm-hmm. And in terms of RPI and seeding going into, like Max was just briefly talking about the NCAA tournament, ASU now obviously 19-7, and 7-7 with their Pac-12 record. ASU is very close to ensuring that spot in the tournament, especially after the LA sweep. 
two notes about two teams at ASU beating their non-conference. Xavier is now ranked number four in the country, and Kansas is number eight. They just also beat Oklahoma by 30 last night. Um, the only ranked Pac-12 team is Arizona. They jumped from 17 when they were playing ASU to now 14 this week. ASU dropped out of the rankings after being number 25 last week. And ASU is at number 29 in the RPI. There was actually no change from last week, even when they lost to Arizona. They're number 35 in Ken Palm. And, Chris, you said that they're not going to fall much more than that, right? They're yeah. not going to fall much more, excuse me, if they lose in the coming weeks, right? It, well, if they lose to Cal at home, that would be a, they would fall. Maybe like up to 8 to 10 spots, mm-hmm. I think. But losses on the road – um, if you lose to Oregon State, you'll probably lose, drop five spots. If you lose to Oregon, you're not going to really drop that much on the road. They're, I think, in the 70s of RPI. This is why ASU has one of the best profiles of any team in Pac-12 history because it's an eight-win ASU team is still an RPI in the 40s at worst, and every RPI 40s team has historically made the, the, the tournament. But, um, of course, ASU's trying to improve its positioning as much as it possibly can. And a main reason for that is you really want to avoid the 8-9 game. I actually talked to a program source, and what I was told was we got to really finish strong because we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we have a toss-up game to start, and then you play a one if you win. With what we did at the beginning of the season, that's not an acceptable conclusion. And then where do you guys, all of you guys, where do, where do you think ASU ends up getting seated in the tournament? Uh, Pac-12 or NCAA? NCAA tournament is what uh, we're talking I, about. Honestly, as of right now, I see them as like a seven or eight seed, uh, and that's probably where they deserve to be. I think the bracket matrix has them as an average of a six point eight three seed, so basically six seven seed. Uh, but I think just considering how I think ASU will wrap up the season, I think they'll be in the closer to the seven or eight seed sort of range, and that's like Chris just says, a dangerous spot to be in. Uh, you don't want to be facing either a one or a two seed round two if you do manage to get past that first-round game. Yeah, I'm, I'm confident enough to say I'll, I'll squarely say seven. I think that's where they end up finishing. I say I'd lean toward six. I think that they get three of their final four conference games. As Chris mentioned, there are you know, a couple, or a couple uh, easy matchups they should knock out of the park. And then uh, you know I think that they don't get that first seed in the Pac-12 tournament, but they should be able to at least win one or two in that tournament. So I think that that will turn them into a six seed. I think they finish as a, a six seed as well. Um, some other Pac-12 uh, teams' RPIs, though, just to quickly read them off. Arizona at number 17. They had no change from a week ago. USC at number 44. And then three Pac-12 teams uh, back-to-back-to-back. UCLA at 48, Washington at 49, and Utah at 50. How many Pac-12 teams do you guys think are going to make it? Well, three, maybe four. I think, I think if I had to guess right now, I would say that two out of the three of USC – and UCLA and Washington get in. Um, probably USC and UCLA is my guess. But um, I, let's not discount the, the possibility that the that ASU seating is hurt by the way the Pac-12 is perceived and also just a general bias about what the, that, that exists, I think, with the Pac-12. And also teams that haven't historically been in the tournament a lot also, I think, get hurt by the lack of historical relevance. And ASU could be a factor to that. And that's why I think that ASU may actually end up being one or two spots off of what most people would, would typically uh, believe to be the case on, in a lot of this modeling. So that's why I'm thinking ASU is like more like maybe an eight seed, mm-hmm. maybe at seven at best is my guess. Do you guys have any thoughts on how many teams make it in from the Pac-12 tournament or from the Pac-12 conference? 
I think Chris Nelda when he said two out of three of Washington, USC, UCLA, I believe. Also, another team that kind of has a chance to sneak in there is Utah. I know their RPI is around 50, but they do have two home matchups against UCLA and USC, which could not only give them a better seed, possibly sneak into that four seed in the in the Pac-12 tournament, but also get them uh, within the top 40 RPI. Right, two, two would-be-impressive wins for them. Um, that's all the time we have today for this Sun Devil Source Report podcast. You can tune in, though, to our site. You can check out all of our football content, our basketball content, our baseball content at sundevilsource.com. Chris just did an interview with general manager of ASU football, Gene Boyd, a Q&A. You guys can check that out. That's some good work on our site. But right now, alongside Kalen Jones, Max Madden, Fabian Ardai, and site publisher Chris Carbon, I'm your host, Rob Werner, saying thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you later. <laughs>